From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is The Televisionaries. Thanks for joining us. Today we're pulling the curtains closed and discussing the very silly vampire comedy, What We Do in the Shadows. We take a look at what makes a successful film-to-TV adaptation and we get down to business with the fourth most popular folk duo in New Zealand. Yep, it's Flight of the Concords. Now, my usual podcast partner, Michael Adardo, is bunking off today. So please welcome my fellow beautiful ladies with thanks to the Flight of the Concords, Spectrum Deputy Editor Kylie Northover and Guide and Green Guide and Columnist and Reviewer Debbie Enker. How are you both? Very well, Louise. I'm very well. Today we're kicking off with a wonderfully silly and very funny vampire comedy, What We Do in the Shadows. The show is a spin-off from the 2017 film of the same name, which featured three vampires being filmed by a documentary crew in their hometown of Wellington. The film was written and directed by Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement, who were then approached to turn it into a TV series. The show features four new vampires, Nandor the Relentless, played by Kay Van Novak, the aristocratic Laszlo, played by Matt Berry, his wife, Nadia, played by Natasia Dimitriou, and the energy vampire, Colin Robinson, played by Mark Prosh. Plus, Nandor's long-suffering human familiar, Guillermo, played by Harvey Guillen. And while the action has been moved from Wellington to Staten Island, the concept is pretty much the same. They're being followed by a documentary crew as they go about their lives looking for virgins to sacrifice, local council meetings to disrupt, and organising biannual virgin orgies. The second season has just started on Foxtel and it's just about the most fun you can find after dark right now. Before we jump in, let's listen to this clip which features Nandor the Relentless talking about the existence of ghosts with his familiar Guillermo. Ghosts, uh, the stuff of fairy tales. Stories we tell children to frighten out their excess energy so that they might slumber more peacefully. Huh. Did you say something? I'm sorry. Vampires are real, but... Ghosts are not. Is there too many fairy stories from that job? No, I actually just want to make sure we're on the same page. You know, after years of working for you, a known vampire, I have seen werewolves, necromancers, a zombie, and several Babadooks, but a ghost, that's where we draw the line. Several? You saw one Babadook. Several. Don't exaggerate. (laughs) Debbie, are you a believer in what we do in the shadows? It made me laugh a lot. I think the kind of the combination of the horror and the comedy works really well because essentially it's immersed in the lore of vampires, the undead, mm. who need to drink uh, human blood and ideally virgin's blood to survive, who live by night, who, who can't stand daylight. Um, so th- there is all this stuff about vampires and them living forever, but it's mixed with a house-sharing comedy So they're having house meetings about who hasn't done the dishes when they're supposed to and who's leaving bloody bones lying around the house. And I think the combination of the two works very well because of the way the comedy part of it is written and also primarily because the vampires are very sweet. Mm, They're mm. very sweet-natured, like they, they will happily kill people and feast on bones and blood and go out hunting for humans. But they're also strangers in a strange land. Mm. They're living in Staten Island, (laughs) of all places, arguing over who should have done the dishes and trying to figure out the world they're living in. So there's a lot of really lovely low-key comedy about their naivety and their innocence. You know, when Nandor gets 
a chain email threatening that if he doesn't pass it on, um, <laughs> he's he's going to die or bad things will happen to him. He genuinely frets that he has been cursed. <laughs> They're quite sweet, and you you feel a great affection for them. It's a it's a good setup. Mm. Kylie, do you think the, it's a particular strain of New Zealand humour that helps this work so well? I suppose so, but I think whereas some programs switching to you know a different setting, particularly America, mm. might get dumbed down or broadened the comedy made more broad I think it I think it's it's still very much in the the vein of the original and I think the cast is just as good in this one too I'm a massive fan of Matt Berry oh my god um who plays Laszlo Mm. he just has to say something and it's hilarious just his delivery the booming voice and we all know him too he was the boss in the IT crowd that's where most people have probably seen him and the mighty boosh yes yeah I think it's great the um Episode that Debbie was talking about with the chainmail, that's a very American urban myth, the Bloody Mary. So they've sort of, you know, they've made that very American, very accessible, but, you know, we can all relate to the chain the chain email thing. <laughs> it is a house-sharing thing. I think we can all relate to it at the moment where we feel like we've had the same housemates for 100 years. <laughs> so, you know, we are all trapped inside. You know what I mean? Like we are all yeah, yeah. shut-ins at the moment. <laughs> but right. I love it. It's just so silly and delightful. And they've made, I think, some wonderful changes and developments from the movie, one of them being the Colin Robinson character, oh which, uh, who I think is just yeah. absolutely inspired. Uh, he's a day walker and he's an energy-draining <laughs> vampire who, who yeah. basically kills people by boring them to death. And so you see him at work trying to engage his, his colleagues who know immediately to try and avoid him and he's perpetually dressed in beige he's a totally (laughs) beige character who can't tell a joke and everyone tries to flee from he's a wonderful addition to the household as is Guillermo as the familiar I'm I'm not being that well acquainted with vampire lore I was not not familiar with the concept (laughs) of a familiar which is basically a human servant Mm. and Guillermo is this gorgeous chubby bespectacled young guy who just wants to be bitten so he can be a vampire and live Mm. you know a never-ending life but instead he's taken for granted he's the guy who has to wash the blood out of the shirts and clean Mm. up the kitchen and and all he wants is acceptance and approval and respect. And mm. th- there is this whole history because Taika Waititi with Jermaine Clement created the film originally mm. of these chubby, bespectacled characters in Taika Waititi movies like Hunt for the Wilder yes. People and Jojo Rabbit. Mm. And they're always fabulous <laughs> characters. They're smart and they're sweet-natured and people don't really appreciate how, how clever and cunning they mm. can be. And Guillermo is like a descendant of that group. An adorable character. Mm. His story is actually the one that grows the most between the first and the second season. Mm. He's at, the, at the end of the first season, he discovers that he is descended from Van Helsing blood and that this is where he develops new confidence. You know, he's not just the servant. He discovers you know, he can be a vampire killer if he wants to and it's fantastic. And the group of people he gets involved with in the second season who fancy themselves as vampire killers <laughs> are also incredibly funny. <laughs> it's great. Uh, it, has a, it has a great sense of the New York suburbs. Mm. And the other good character who comes in in Series 2 is Topher, the hipster familiar, <laughs> who has, you know, the side hustle in making craft cider. Yeah. 
and, and is lazy and cunning and pretends to work when he's not actually doing anything and offends Guillermo. There are some really clever developments in this series. Yeah, and he's also played by another familiar dead character, Haley Joel Osment, who we all know from the uh, Sixth Sense. Because you look at him, he's like, oh, hang on. That's Haley Joel, the young kid who um, mm. saw dead people. I didn't actually recognise him until Growed I saw up. the credits yeah. at the end. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Jermaine Clement said when he created the original film, the original idea came from humanity's capacity for petty grudges and what this would be like was stretched out over hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's why I do love Debbie saying, you know, the house meetings about getting blood on the, the sofa after the um, vampire orgy and things like that. It's just so cleverly done. And I love too that it is pure, sweet, silly comedy as well. There's no real mean bite to it. It's just wonderfully silly humour. And we've talked oh. previously about wanting just a nice little half-hour comedy at the end of the day you can put on and just laugh at. And I think what we do in the shadows fits the bill perfectly. For the times, it's perfect. And and also, as Kylie said, because it's about people trapped in a house. <laughs> if you're interested in this, you should also check out Wellington Paranormal, which is on SBS On Demand, because that also came out of um, the What We Do in the Shadows film. Um, and then the Wellington Paranormal crew have also done a web series about uh, coronavirus and self-isolating at home for New Zealand. Um, I mean, the success of What We Do in the Shadows makes us wonder what makes a good film to TV adaptation. I mean, if you're talking about Australian adaptations, there's loads from Heartbreak High to Romper Stomper, Puberty Blues, Animal Kingdom, Devil's Playground, Wake and Fright and Picnic and Hanging Rock. They're all Australian films that have made the leap from the big screen to the small. While some have worked, for me, Puberty Blues, which was based on the 1981 film, really opened up the world of the two girls featured in the story, while Romper Stomper was a bit of a gratuitous, violent flop. So what makes it work? Kylie, what do you think the benefits are of starting with a film and then moving into a TV series? I don't know if there are benefits, but I think if you, if you have a look, there's a long history of more, way more failures mm. than there are successes. Yeah. I think mostly comedies tend to work mm -hmm. because the plot is maybe perhaps a bit secondary to the jokes. But one of my favourites is, um, and I'm showing my age here, Fame, of course, grew <laughs> out of the movie from ooh, 1978. Mm. But a lot of them, I think, tend to be comedy. Buffy, MASH, one of my, another one of my favourites. Heartbreak High was a good example of a drama that worked, mm, but I mm. do think it's tricky. You know, you can't you can't emulate a big budget film, of course, in look, and often they don't have the same actors. Mm. But I think it's also a lot to do with that you can't keep the narrative arc going necessarily successfully. Mm. I mean, there's so many flops in this exercise. Have you got a favourite flop? Did you ever see Uncle Buck? They tried to make Uncle Buck into oh, God, a... No. I think your your mention of um, Romper Stomper was a good example yeah. of one that didn't work. Yeah. I think it's about a film presenting to you characters in a situation that you might want to follow. Yeah. And producers thinking, okay, people really loved those characters and the situation that they were in. There's an audience for it. Mm. Can we develop it further? And sometimes it works and sometimes it really doesn't. I think you're right. Puberty Blues was mm. wonderful in the way it developed those characters and that situation, the families, the two generations, what they were dealing with in that time period. It's almost the, the standout that, that uh, proves the rule that it might not be a good idea, but it kind of depends on who's doing it and how well they managed to do it. Mm. For me, the one that made me think, I can't have a fixed opinion on whether or not this is a good idea or a bad idea was Fargo. Oh, because yeah. when I yeah. heard when I heard that they were going to remake Fargo into a TV series, I thought, well, there is a project 
that is completely doomed. What an ill-conceived mm. idea. Who would attempt to emulate the Coens brothers, that sensibility, that sense of place, the fabulous performance by Frances McDormand mm. as the very pregnant Minnesota cop. And yet three seasons on, that series is wonderful. Yeah. Noah Hawley actually managed to nail it. And that was the one that proved to me that any preconceived prejudices I might have about whether or not it's a good idea to adapt or not, I need to get rid of. Because every now and then one comes along that completely defies your expectations. I think the the reason Fargo worked was it was just a sense of place. He didn't really he didn't replicate the characters. It was a whole new story set each time. Mm. So you just yes. had the you had the sense of feeling about Minnesota, the really snowy area and the kind of crazy locals. And you weren't looking, yeah, to the Coen Brothers characters. It was like you're resetting at the beginning of each series and that's why it worked so well. It got the tone, but mm. it also used elements from mm. the movie, mm. like the pregnant police woman being the main detective and you know, her father who ran the local diner mm. and the idea of, of in the first season the, the inadvertent harassed husband who turns into a killer mm. and then how he starts to embrace that role. It sort of very carefully picked elements that it wanted from the movie and moved them into a new space. And I think that's what I also really liked about what we do in The Shadows because the developments they made from the movie to the TV series I think worked really yeah. well because mm. the movie to me felt quite boisey. It mm. felt like the sort of project, a group of guys get together in college, discover that they're, you know, they share a sensibility and they work together really well and this is what they created. But when the, when Germaine Clement moved it to a TV series, he introduced more interesting and central female characters yeah. and I think that worked really well for the TV series. Yeah. Have you ever had a case where you think that a TV series has gone well to a movie or do you think it's always better to go movie to TV series? Not sure that there's a hard and fast rule. Yeah. Because I think... TV series to movie, I think of ones that didn't work well, like Sex in the City, which yeah. I think was a disaster, um, and mm. Kath and Kim, which also didn't work well on a big screen and mm. in a format longer than half an hour. But then you get something like Downton Abbey. And for people who loved that series and weren't ready to leave those characters, the Downton Abbey movie, you know, the king and the queen are coming mm. and the gang's all back together, worked really well. So it's worth watching? I mean, it's pretty bad, Downton Abbey, but I wouldn't mind seeing the movie. <laughs> I've seen every episode of it and I wanted to know what happened to Lady Berry and I, I wanted sort of to want to know. Yeah, and, okay, and I yeah. wanted to see Maggie Smith again. I, I just wanted yes. to be back in, in that world with those characters. And Julian Fellows is a very clever writer who, who plotted it around a major event, the visit of the king and queen mm. to Downton. So you can trust his plotting and you can trust his character development. So he made the most of having 90 more minutes and a big screen to tell the story of that family. So I don't know that it's that you can necessarily have rules about it. Mm. Great ideas for TV series come from so many places. They come from books. They might come from films. I mean, we've seen movie a movie, a really successful movie franchise that was based on a theme park ride, Pirates of the Caribbean. When that happens, I don't know that you can discount anything <laughs> as a source. It's just it depends who's doing it and how they do it. Well, there's also video game movies now. Yeah. And really good TV series that come from comics. 
So there, there are all sorts of different places that you can get your ideas, but it depends on who's doing them and how they do it. Is there any, are there any films you think you'd like to see turned into a TV series? Look, I'd watch Mad Max. Would you go with the Mel Gibson Mad Max version or the um, Tom Hardy Mad Max, the more recent one? Uh, Mel Gibson, for sure. Yeah. I wouldn't mind following what happened to Sibylla after the end of my brilliant career or Muriel oh. after the end of Muriel's wedding. Yeah, I was thinking about Muriel on the weekend too. I thought that would make a great TV series. Following them through to see what happened to them, I would be interested in doing. But when I tried to think of international examples, I was really stumped. Maybe it's because I haven't been in a a movie theatre for so long. The experience (laughs) is now seems something quite foreign and remote. The only one I could think of was... And it would be a prequel rather than a sequel would be Parasite. I wouldn't mind spending more time with that family and seeing how they got to the point that we saw in the movie because the family was so delightful and and the relationship between the family members was so warm and so accepting. They seemed to have a great time together. So I, I wouldn't mind seeing a bit more of their history. Yeah. All right, cool. Let's let's leave that there because we're going to move on to game time. So today's game time is Who Am I? So please stick around for that. And at the end of the show, we're going to look back at the very funny Flight of the Concords. We're also going to check in with what our critics are binging when they're off duty. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to check out another new podcast from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. It's called Good Weekend Talks, and each week you can listen to a full read-through of its most popular cover stories. From inside Scott Morrison's Pentecostal church to the Spanish flu, were we ready for another pandemic? You can listen to the definitive stories that matter to Australians. So after this episode, go and search Good Weekend Talks. Right, game time, everyone. This week it is Who Am I? So I'm going to read out some clues. You ready? Listen. These are hard. I was born on December 12, 1970, to my Jewish mother, Irene, and my Irish Nordic father, Jared. I was raised primarily in Brooklyn Heights, near the Brooklyn Bridge, where I attended St. Anne's, a private school specialising in the arts. I began modelling for print ads at a young age before moving on to TV commercials. Although I couldn't speak Japanese, I recorded two pop songs for the Japanese market, Monologue of Love and Message of Love, singing them phonetically when I was 16. Anything? No, nothing. Nothing? This is driving me crazy because I think whoever this person is, I recently saw an interview with them where they talked about the Japanese pop songs and I can't remember for the life of me who it was. Hopefully it will come back to me. I don't know if it's that exact interview, Debbie, but I've read an interview with them recently too. So they're out chatting at the moment. So there's someone who's out promoting something. For today's back catalogue, we're sticking with our Made in New Zealand theme and looking back at the super daggy and hilarious Flight of the Concords, the musical comedy series from Jermaine Clement and Brett McKenzie that follows the pair as they try to make it big as a folk duo in New York City. However, things don't quite go to plan. They're constantly hampered by their dim manager Murray, who is also the deputy cultural attaché to New Zealand, while being stalked by their only fan, Mel. The show ran for two seasons on HBO from 2007 and it's filled with wonderfully silly songs like Business Time. Sample lyrics include, Monday night is my night to cook, Tuesday night we go and visit your mother, but Wednesday we make sweet little love. You can watch both seasons now on Foxtel, but before we jump in, let's have a listen to this clip that features their manager Murray, played by Reese Darby, talking to Jermaine and Brett about how to build their following. 
Item one, fan base. Ways to increase the American fan base. What fan base? The fan base of the band. Well, you mean Mel. That's mm. not a fan base, that's just a woman. Yeah, but I'm, I'm calling it fan base from now on. It's just easier when I call, because, you, you know, you say, oh, the fan will be there. Just, you know, they can tell there's only one person. I'm trying to make it look bigger. So base, put base on the end of it. Okay? That sounds good. It sounds better. I came up with that. Do we have any gigs, what? Murray? Yeah, I'm getting to that. Debbie, are you part of the Flight of the Concords fan base? I wasn't, but <laughs> I have become because knowing that we were going to talk about this show, I'd only seen a couple of stray episodes mm. back in the day when it was made, which was I think 2007, 2008, around that time. So I did a, a refresher crash course mm. in Flight of the Concords and I can really understand the appeal. I also understand why it's constantly referred to as a cult comedy yeah. because clearly it's it's not for everyone. <laughs> it's very deadpan. There are numerous ways you could tell the story, I think, of two young singer-songwriters trying to make it in the music scene in America and living in downtown New York. It could be quite a flashy, glossy, in love with New York, glittering production. This is the antithesis of mm, that. Mm. It looks like they hunted down every dull, unprepossessing building <laughs> in the downtown area to use for it. The New Zealand consulate is the ugliest building I've ever seen <laughs> and you, you would drive past it without noticing. And the apartment where Brett and Jermaine live is just it's not downtown cool. There's nothing glamorous or cool about these two, which is part of its charm. The two of them are kind of so kind of timid and not really sure about mm. what they're doing. And that is part of the show's charm. Mm. But you, you need to get into that mindset of it and to the tone, mm. very much the tone. I wonder if it's something about New Zealanders. Well, Brett's not even a fan of the band himself. Did you see that episode? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. There's a later one where they're talking about the fan base and Murray wants to add both of them to the fan list. And Brett says, well, no, I'm, I'm not even a fan of the band. <laughs> it's just that it's just such understated deadpan mm. comedy, isn't it? I remember when it was on, I knew people who just couldn't, didn't get it, just couldn't grasp that kind of humour because it is so deadpan. I actually hate musical comedy. Like if someone described this show to me, I'd be like, oh, that's that's got to be the worst thing I can imagine. But this is actually hilarious. I don't have that kind of antipathy to musical comedy. I love musicals and musical comedies. Happy to go with that. And actually one of the delightful aspects of the show is the music clip interludes. When they burst into song and suddenly the song's look like um, an ABBA clip mm. or they look like a French art movie. It's such a great a contrast. A badly done one, though, usually. A badly done one, but that's, again, part of what's appealing about it. Yeah. It's like what we exactly. do in The Shadows. You don't actually need a huge budget and great special effects. Mm. You can rely on mm. the performances, the tone, the strength of the writing, and that will carry it. So I, I can understand why people love this show, and I can also understand why it's also referred to as cult, which means a small but devoted audience. Yeah. Not quite mm. as small as Mel, their avid, slightly <laughs> creepy fan, but still it's never going to be a broad appeal thing. Yeah, and I love that. It's not, the songs just, it's not just the songs that are fantastic. I love the way they commit to the dancing. 
uh, in their little video <laughs> clips, they go with their songs. Because that's my, one of my yeah. favourite ones is Brett's Angry Dance, which is a complete, I think, loving homage to Kevin Bacon in one of my favourite 80s movies, Footloose, where he's just very angry about a bongo player being introduced to the band and this is how he sort of gets the anger out. And it is about all the, the banal stuff of daily life too, mm. like mm. Um, what we do in the shadows. It, it makes a lot of humour out of you know, yeah. household stuff. And really, I don't want to go clubbing. I'd prefer to go home and have a nap and eat a sandwich. It, it's mm. very kind of low key in that way, which is unusual and nice. But I do feel as an Australian, I have to object to the characterisation of the Australian woman in the episode where <laughs> Jermaine briefly has an affair with an Australian played by Sarah Winter. And she's obnoxious <laughs> and loud and coarse and eats, you know, horrible cold pizza and lives in a grotty dive with a whole group of other really unpleasant Australians. I feel, you know, some national pride here as we are under attack from the New Zealanders. Oh, Debbie, have you ever seen any backpackers living overseas, Australian backpackers? I was just going to say, Hey, that sounds like a lot of Australian people I knew in London. <laughs> okay, fair point. <laughs> All right, everyone. Um, look, let's leave that there. I'd, I'd be quite happy to be like them and stay at home and have a sandwich instead of going out clubbing as well. But let's just check in before we finish off. Who am I? Let's see what you're both watching. Debbie, what's on your list this week? Well, interesting you should be talking about um, the need for a comedy because I've gone the other way. Mm. I've been watching... I Know This Much Is True, which is a six-part drama series on uh, Foxtel On Demand now. Mm. Um, and I was interested in it. It's based on um, a book by Wally Lamb, apparently a 900-page book that is about essentially two brothers, twin brothers, Dominic and Thomas Birdsey, who live in a, a really um, working-class, hard-scrabble area of Connecticut and Thomas is a paranoid schizophrenic and it's about their life together, really their history from childhood to adulthood and Dominic trying to carry the burden of this, this brother who requires a lot of care and attention and can be very destructive. It's bleak and it's gruelling over six episodes and I was interested in seeing it because Mark Ruffalo, who's also an executive producer, plays the adult twins and they shot all of his scenes and then they took a break for six weeks because Thomas is a lot bigger and chubbier and kind of more bloated than Dominic. So Mark Ruffalo lost about five kilos to play Dominic mm. and then in six weeks put on about 14 kilos oh to God. play Thomas so that it looked authentic and it looks extraordinary and I was interested in seeing it because as an actor and producer he had that much commitment to this mm. project. And it's written and directed by Derek C. and France whose films I really love like Blue Valentine and The Place Beyond the Pines. He's wonderful with actors. He gets great performances, but it is very gruelling. I'm not sure that it was mm. the right choice. I only choice. made it through one episode. Uh, it gets so much worse. Oof. There's tragedy. Oh, God. There is tragedy upon tragedy for this family. Mm. I won't even detail right. how many, but what I can say having reached the end is that the ending is glorious. It's a really wonderful, in its way, understated, but to really worthwhile payoff. Oh, my God. I'm sticking with vampires. Kylie, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been watching something dystopian, but it's not as bleak as, as that program. Mm. I've been watching a teen show because it's still sort of been sort of school holidays yeah. here. So I've been watching a um, on ABC. It's called Utopia Falls. Mm -hmm. So it's it's gone with your classic, you know, YA trope of the dystopia 
So it's set, you know, 400 years in the future or something. Mm. So it's this bunch of teenagers mm. who everyone lives in a different zone. You're assigned to a different zone, which is sort of like, it's a bit sort of classes. Mm. Some kids discover this secret uh, room. It's called the archive. It's sort of hidden in a, a cliff face. Mm. And when they get inside, it's all, because relics from the past are banned from the old world. They get inside there and it's all um, books and artworks it's a musical repository and they discover hip hop. <laughs> so it's quite, it's quite funny. Yeah. And the archive, it's sort of like Siri. They say, show me something from 1990. And the archive is voiced by Snoop Dogg. It's very funny. <laughs> and so Snoop Dogg introduces them to hip hop and suddenly they're busting moves and shaving lines in their hair. And so the, the revolution is going to come through hip hop, which I kind of like. It's absolutely ridiculous, but I kind of love it. And hip hop is also, you know, it's got bigger message as well. Hip hop is teaching them to question authority mm. and um, they don't, they haven't heard about protesting and it's quite fun. Oh, it sounds fabulous. And look, if, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, YA is young adult drama, isn't it? Sort of a teenage. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yes. A teenage drama. Look, it's kind of on the same vein of hip-hop. I've been watching Hamilton the Musical on Disney+. Plus. It's by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and it's the Broadway show that took the world by storm with its soundtrack, uh, which cleverly mixes hip-hop with sort of the more traditional big Broadway belters. They filmed two shows and then 13 more numbers up close just to get the, the close-ups. Um, and it really just makes me sad for the live theatre that we're missing now. Um, but I'm also just grateful for the soundtrack because at the beginning of lockdown, I almost wanted to divorce my husband because he kept singing the Les Mis soundtrack for weeks. And now he's at least switched to this, which is uh, much more easier on the ears. Um, and it also gives me a chance to plug the 1970s FBI drama Mindhunter, which is on Netflix. Uh, and that stars Jonathan Groff, who plays George III in Hamilton. In Mindhunter, he plays a profiler called Holden Ford. And the character was named as a salute to car manufacturing in Adelaide by the show's South Australian creator, Joe Penhall. So there you go. Wow, I didn't know that was where the name came it from. Uh, it did, yeah. So Ooh. everyone, they do make a bit of a joke about it eventually in the show. So the character is Holden Ford for all you car nerds out there. Okay, let's uh, finish off game time. Back to who am I? Okay. At age 12, a casting director introduced me to Sergio Leone who was seeking a young dancer for his gangster epic Once Upon a Time in America. Although I had no experience in ballet, uh, I won the Bibi. role. Debbie. Jennifer Connolly. Holy dooly, that's two weeks in a row uh, you've won. God, I would never have got that. I would never have oh, got that. Nice Well work. done, well done, well done. I yes. think I did recently see an interview with her on Graham Norton. Yep. Where she oh. talked about that she had had hit songs in Japan when she was young without being able to speak Japanese and she demonstrated wow. on the show how she read the lyrics phonetically. Yeah, so Jennifer Connolly is currently starring in Snowpiercer on Netflix. Uh, Debbie and Kylie, thank you so much for your views on our little New Zealand special and uh, happy viewing for the rest of the week and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Louise. Thank you. Uh, if you like the podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app and please rate and review us. You can follow Debbie on Twitter at Debbie Enker and Kylie is at Melbourne Bitter and you can find me at Lou underscore Rue. You can also read stories by Debbie, Kylie or myself on the mastheads of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. We'll catch up with you next time on the Television Age. The Televisionaries is brought to you by the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. It's hosted by myself, Louise Rugendijk. It was created and executively produced by Life Editor Monique Farmer and Culture Editor Matt Burgess. The podcast is produced by Lap Fan and our Head of Audio is Tom McKendrick. 
The Nine Network is the owner of this podcast and the streaming service Stan.